I'm James Hellman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On. My guest this week is Adam Schiff, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. As Russia intensifies its invasion of Ukraine, I've been thinking of what Lenin supposedly said right before the Russian Revolution. There are decades where nothing happens, and there are weeks where decades happen. With major geopolitical reorientations across Europe, I can't think of anyone in Congress better to help us process one of those weeks. Schiff is a California Democrat who has been dealing with Russia-U.S. relations for many years. He even started his career back in the day prosecuting an FBI agent who spied for the Soviets. Plus, just over two years ago, he was the one who managed the first impeachment of Donald Trump. That impeachment, of course, was over a scheme to freeze military aid to Ukraine in hopes of coercing Volodymyr Zelensky to help Trump's own re-election campaign. Here's our conversation. Congressman, thank you for taking the time. It's great to be with you. I'm eager to talk about what's happening in Ukraine right now, but I wanted to start briefly with that impeachment. I wrote a column recently that said Trump's shakedown of Zelensky looks even more insidious against the backdrop of everything that's going on. How much have you been reflecting on that episode as this crisis has unfolded? Well, as you might imagine, quite a lot. Um, the world has really gotten to know Vladimir Zelensky uh, mostly in the last couple of weeks, uh, as it has seen his incredible courage uh, in the face of this Russian onslaught. He's been a remarkable wartime leader. Um, this same Zelensky, when he was in his first uh, weeks and months in office, was the subject of an effort at a shakedown by the president of the United States. Uh, this was someone who came to office without political experience. He had been a TV star and a comedian, uh, and he was being pressured by Donald Trump to essentially smear Joe Biden. And Trump was withholding military aid from Ukraine in order to coerce him to do it. Uh, and the thing I think that most Americans need to realize is this conflict with Russia, you know, certainly has intensified with this this massive invasion, but the conflict has been going on for a long time. Ukrainians have been fighting Russians and dying for years, and we're fighting Russians and dying uh, at the time when Trump was withholding military aid from them. Uh, so it, it certainly brings home uh, just how depraved an act that was, but also it had, I think, long-term consequences. What do you think those are, just emboldening Putin to, to move more aggressively? I mean, yes, I think that uh, the message it sent to Putin was that the United States didn't care about Ukraine, that basically the only the only thing uh, at that time, certainly, the president cared about in terms of Ukraine was using Ukraine as leverage. Um, but in terms of the democracy, the democratic aspirations of the people of Ukraine, Trump had nothing but disdain for that, it appeared, I think, to Putin. And so I think that certainly led Putin to believe that the United States really wouldn't go to bat for Ukraine. This was one of, I think, his serious miscalculations. Uh, the U.S. is not only going to bat for Ukraine, but so are our allies in a really unprecedented way. Yeah, I want to talk about that because it is really remarkable. But I am interested in your view on the end game. The Pentagon thought Ukraine would have fallen by now. Do you have hope that Ukrainians can hold out indefinitely, or do you see the country being divided or partitioned in some way? How, how does this end? Uh, you know, it's obviously a really good question. Uh, at every briefing I've had from the, you know, the directors of the intelligence community on down, I've asked a variation on the question, which is, 
what's Putin's endgame here? And I think it's very unclear because Putin's expectations were so at odds with reality. He apparently believed that he would be welcomed uh, in Ukraine, uh, that he wouldn't be facing this kind of stiff uh, opposition, that Europe would be divided, that uh, Zelensky would be weak. None of those things proved to be true. And you would think the Russians would need to be reminded that it's easy to get into a country. It's often hard to get out. But it is hard to see how this ends. Now, you know, I will say this. The Russians have overwhelming military force. If they're determined to use it to overrun the country, they will be able to overrun the country. But what comes next is really unclear. Um, You know, whatever plans they've had to install a puppet regime seem so uh, far-fetched. Who's going to follow that puppet regime? Uh, how do you occupy a country of so many millions that are so hostile to your presence? So it is very hard to see how this ends um, in the way that Putin uh, may have intended. Yeah, and it, it's been really heartening to see some of the people who we were concerned were going to be pro-Russian that might be part of a fifth column. Even the mayor of Odessa has been sort of pro-Putin in the past, but he has taken a strong line because he's defending the independence of his country. For those who worry the U.S. government isn't doing enough to go to bat, what can you tell listeners about how we are helping Ukraine defend and prepare for a a potential insurgency? Well, I I think that we're doing everything we can do uh, short of taking uh, steps that would risk a direct military confrontation with Russia, which is obviously not what we want to do. And the president has been very clear, we're not sending boots on the ground to Ukraine. Uh, But short of that, we're providing military support, we're providing economic support. Uh, Most important, we have helped to rally the world to uh, squeeze Russia economically, to cripple and hobble their economy. You know, some of the things that, that our European partners have been willing to do, I would have never imagined would be the case. I was certainly hopeful that the Germans would would crack down and stop the pipeline. They have. I never imagined the Swiss would be willing to use their banking system also to uh, to squeeze uh, Russia. Um, that nations like Germany and others in Europe would be willing to send weapons to Ukraine. So the response has been overwhelming, and I I think that uh, a big part of it is that President Biden has been able to once again, restore America's support for NATO, uh, to work with our allies in partnership. He's not out there saying, uh, you know, our country comes first and we don't care about any of the rest of you. And, you know, there's a great deal of solidarity with our democratic allies. That solidarity has helped make these sanctions on Russia already devastating for their economy. Is there any reason to think that this pressure is going to be so overwhelming that Putin might actually be overthrown? Or do you think his hold on power is pretty secure? He's got, a, I think, a very strong hold on power. Uh, you can see what terror people even around him uh, live in with the dressing down he gave of their foreign intelligence chief uh, when he didn't have the Putin line down sufficiently well. And that was broadcast by Putin's choice. That humiliation was Putin's choice to show you know, he's the dominant figure. Nobody can question him. Not even the top people in his government can question him. This is part of the problem, which is if there were top people to give him good advice about the difficulties they would encounter in Ukraine, he wasn't going to hear it from them. Um, but uh, but he has a pretty solid hold. Uh, at the same time, the economy is really cratering. 
the Russian people are going to suffer from the folly of their leader. Uh, and what Putin has been most terrified of uh, could come to pass, uh, and that is, uh, you know, these color revolutions really uh, had Putin living in fear. And when the Orange Revolution came to Ukraine and people, you know, overthrew this pro-Kremlin regime, this corrupt regime, and, and demanded better governance, uh, he saw that as a direct threat. If the Ukrainian people could demand democracy, why couldn't the Russian people? Um, and so I, I think that this is such a big gamble on his part that notwithstanding, you know, his solid dictatorial hold, even that is put at risk um, over time. I, I don't imagine anything's going to happen immediately, but over time. Are you in the camp that sees Putin as crazy, someone who's sort of been diminished by isolation during COVID? Or are you in the camp that he's crazy like a fox? In other words, rational. Well, I think he's rational, um, which is a hard thing to say for someone who's a murderous dictator. But, uh, but uh, I mean rational in the sense that I don't think he's insane. Uh, I don't think he's suffering from mental illness. I do think he's isolated. And you can see it uh, quite physically isolated, even when he's meeting with his top people. They're way on the other side of the room. But, but more than that, I think he's isolated himself in where he is living. I think he's isolated himself by conveying to those around him that they dare not disagree with him. And I, I think the pandemic uh, has really had an added impact on not just his isolation, but on uh, his decision-making and made it uh, far more fraught. Uh, and, and whatever sound advice he might have been given in the past uh, from people around him, those people do not appear to be around him. One of the people who is around Putin among his small band of allies is Belarus's president, Alexander Lukashenko, who kind of used to sort of play the West and the East off of each other, but has now moved obviously squarely in Russia's camp, Belarus sending troops into Ukraine. There was an address that Lukashenko gave to his security council on Tuesday that was televised, and he stood in front of this battle command map that appeared to show a planned attack from southern Ukraine into Moldova, a former Soviet republic that borders Ukraine and Romania, but is not a member of NATO. What do you think the odds are that Putin goes beyond Ukraine in the short term? I think in the, in the short term, uh, it, it's unlikely. Uh, I hope very unlikely, particularly um, because he knows the reaction worried to go into a NATO country would be uh, devastating. And I think he's he's taken on more than he can handle in Ukraine. I, I think he is seeing uh, that his military is not as capable as he thought it was. And so I, I think the, the risks of that are low. But nonetheless, you know, where wars have escalated, it has been not on the basis of things that were planned. Often it's been on the basis of the unexpected. So, uh, I, you know, I, I can't say that uh, this is not a nerve-wracking situation. It is. Uh, but I think that Putin's ambitions uh, at this time are confined to Ukraine. But, you know, at the same time, other nations are watching with an eye towards their own territorial ambitions. Uh, most pointedly, China um, is looking to see, can the world really unite and stay united against Russian uh, aggression uh, economically? Um, and what would that mean if they invade Taiwan? And what do you think? That I wanted to ask you about China. There have been several press reports this week that intelligence shows China asked Russia to delay the invasion of Ukraine until after the Olympics. 
China abstained during some of the key United Nations votes, but also put out a statement officially deploring the invasion. What do you make of China's role in all this? And what message do you think they are getting vis-a-vis Taiwan? I think what China is trying to do is uh, walk a line uh, where they maintain a very close relationship with Russia, which they feel they would need if they invade Taiwan. And also they want a close relationship with Russia uh, to push back against the United States and the West. Uh, I think China is probably very unhappy that Putin has brought the West and NATO together uh, when China would love to see it fractured as uh, it had been, or at least uh, Trump was (laughs) weakening the coalition when, when he was in the Oval Office. At the same time, China wants to distinguish between, I think, Ukraine and Taiwan. It views Taiwan differently than Ukraine. So it's trying to walk this fine line. Um, but I I think that uh, China realizes that geopolitically, it has more and more in common with Russia. In terms of the economy and sanctions, uh, China must be dismayed at the unity and the strength uh, and the punitive nature of the sanctions. Um, At the same time, China recognizes that its economy is far more integrated with Europe and the United States. And were we to sanction China in the same way we're sanctioning Russia, the repercussions, the collateral impact on the United States uh, and our allies would be much greater. Uh, And I'm sure it takes some confidence in knowing that. Um, So it's probably looking to how much pain are we willing to accept. Um, The fact that we haven't gone further to attack Russia's oil and gas, uh, maybe a signal to China that there's only so much economic pain we're willing to suffer. And so we need to keep that in mind as we turn the screws to Russia. Um, I think we have to be willing to accept uh, the some of the pain uh, as a deterrent to Russia, but as a deterrent to China as well. What other screws would you still like to see tightened? Um, I, you know, I would love to see us tighten the screws more on their uh, oil and gas revenues. And I, you know, I think that what we're seeing is that over time, well, first of all, the United States and Europe started with uh, some really dramatic and painful sanctions. But over the days that have followed, we have further tightened the, the squeeze and we have cut off some of the end runs that Russia used after their invasion in 2014 um, of other parts of Ukraine. And... And so I I think we'll continue to ratchet up the pain as long as this goes on. We'll be right back after a short break. You mentioned the German strategic pivot. You mentioned that even the Swiss aren't being neutral. Thinking about what comes out of this, are are there long-term impacts in Europe? For example, do you see... Finland or Sweden all of a sudden winding up in NATO or other major tectonic shifts that we haven't seen just yet? I think the magnitude of this aggression really throws off all prior bets in terms of whether countries change their alignment or become more formally aligned with the West uh, and NATO. And in this respect, uh, this is Putin's worst fear coming to realization. Uh, you know, after 2014, Ukraine consolidated against Russia far more than it had been before. Uh, and with this invasion, that consolidation is really complete. 
uh, in terms of Ukrainian public attitudes, as you were expressing of the mayor of Odessa. And it may very well cause other countries to question whether their alignment still makes sense, given just how nakedly aggressive Putin is and the need to protect themselves against that. Even within European countries that are part of NATO, we're seeing shifts, and a lot of it is driven by overwhelming public opinion, just uh, the horror, the human rights abuses. Hungary is particularly interesting in part because there's a national election there on April 3rd. Viktor Orban has been uncomfortably cozy with Putin, but he's been backing away from that because of the popular disgust with the war. Donald Trump has endorsed Orban, and there are reports this week that the prime minister's team has extended an invitation for Trump to fly out to hold what would essentially be a rally. What do you make of all this maneuvering? It does feel like some of these populists, whether in Hungary or France, have been discredited uh, by Putin's maneuvers. We've, this week, we saw Marine Le Pen throw away campaign materials that had pictures of, of her and Putin standing together, shaking hands. What kind of impact do you see this having on domestic European politics? I think you're absolutely right. I, I think it's a stain on anyone who's had a, a close association with Putin. It also underscores, you know, something that that I think people have forgotten as memories of World War II recede, and that is the the horrors of dictatorship. Uh, there's this terrible flirtation, some would say love affair, uh, in the Trump Republican Party uh, with authoritarianism. Um, they have viewed Viktor Orban as one of their models to follow. and um, But now we're getting a graphic view of what dictatorship really means and the horrors of it. And so I think it's discrediting not only Donald Trump's fondness for Putin and his affinity for autocracy, but that of Viktor Orban. Uh, hopefully the same is true of other uh, would-be despots uh, around the world. And you have seen this rise of the the kind of xenophobic populist autocrats in Brazil with Bolsonaro and the Philippines with Duterte uh, and in other places. And, uh, and I do think this will have the impact of discrediting that model. I want to talk about one more dictator, and then I want to talk about the January 6th committee updates, that, which have been significant this week. Uh, Saudi Arabia. The Atlantic published an interview on Thursday with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it yet, but he denies ordering the murder of Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi and ludicrously presents himself as the victim. The Crown Prince defends himself in part by asserting that Khashoggi was not important enough to kill. And he said that if he were to send a kill squad, he would have chosen a more valuable target and more competent assassins. This is at odds with the intelligence community's assessment that MBS was culpable for Jamal's murder. You have been outspoken on this and on press freedom. What's your reaction to these comments by bin Salman? Well, uh, you know, I guess what you would expect, but uh, it doesn't change the facts or the truth um, of this uh, brutal premeditated murder. I mean, the fact that they were discovered doesn't somehow ameliorate their guilt uh, or uh, provide some kind of a alibi that were they to do it, they would have done it better or they would have chosen a different target. And, you know, it, it tells you a lot about the nature of that regime, uh, that they're willing to murder and dismember a journalist on foreign soil. But, you know, I, I think at the moment, uh, this demonstrates the challenges that the, the Biden administration faces. 
it would be welcome for nations like Saudi Arabia to increase production right now uh, to uh, further turn the screws to Vladimir Putin. And this is the dilemma that uh, our administration always faces with these human rights abusing nations, uh, which is they can play an important role for well or for ill during crises like these. Um, but in terms of what he had to say about uh, Khashoggi just nauseating um, and just more lies uh, from the regime. Nauseating is is exactly right. We've talked about the very real threats abroad, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about your efforts to address the threats here at home. Lawyers for the House panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol said in a court filing Wednesday night in your home state of California that Trump and key allies engaged in potential crimes during their effort to overturn the election, conspiring to defraud the United States and obstructing an official congressional proceeding, the counting of electoral votes. You were on this committee. How significant is this filing? What should we make of it? I think it's significant. The court asked us whether the crime fraud exception applied. Uh, this is, you know, for your listeners, this is someone who uh, Eastman uh, purports to have been a an attorney for the president, um, but in fact, I don't think has shown at all uh, sufficient evidence that he was representing the president. Uh, so his communication shouldn't be privileged on that basis. But there is this exception of crime or fraud, that is, that if a client seeks an attorney's help to commit a crime or fraud, that's not a communication that's going to be protected. Um, and the judge wanted to know, is there a reasonable good faith basis to believe that's what's going on here? And the answer is yes. I mean, interfering with the certification of the electors, that's an official proceeding. It's a violation of, of Title 18 of the U.S. Code to corruptly try to interfere with a, an official proceeding. And I think there is ample evidence the president... Uh, was advised by people that he had lost the election, that these litigation claims were bogus, uh, that he had no right to ask the vice president to try to stop the proceeding. And so potentially a number of laws were violated, that Title 18 statute, but also uh, conspiracy to defraud as well as a common law fraud. And so this is, I think, the first time we put this in writing, but I, I do think it's a uh, important basis for the court to set aside that claim of privilege. Obviously, the committee cannot bring criminal charges. Those would have to come from the Justice Department, which they already have on some of the contempt. Uh, Steve Bannon, for example. I was looking at the Justice Department announcement on that plea deal with one of the Oath Keeper members for seditious conspiracy. And it does feel more apparent that the committee and the Justice Department are working on the same or at least similar legal theories. It feels like justice obviously is working from the bottom up and the committee is working on Trump and his cronies at that level. How much synergy does your team have with Maine Justice? Uh, I wouldn't describe it as a synergy. Um, you know, the Department of Justice has an independent responsibility. Uh, I don't think that they should be waiting for our report. I don't think they should be waiting for a referral from us. I do have some concerns that things I think should be investigated by the department don't appear to be investigated. I would point quite separate and apart from our filing uh, to um, efforts by the former president to get the secretary of state in Georgia to find 11,780 votes uh, to overturn the election, uh, the exact number he would need 
uh, to beat Biden in that state. And I think had anybody else been in a recorded conversation uh, trying to coerce uh, an elections official into committing what would have been a fraud, they would be under investigation. And so I, I do think that the Justice Department is obviously investigating and prosecuting people who were involved in the violence of January 6th and the planning of it. But there were multiple lines of effort to overturn the election that I believe involved other evidence of illegality, uh, such as we alluded to in our brief, that, uh, that ought to be the subject of investigation. You've been doing a lot of depositions in, in closed settings. You've been subpoenaing lots of documents. For listeners, to walk us through what's next. I know there are some hearings in the near future, public hearings from the committee. What's the timeline for, for where we go from here? Uh, you know, I, I think as we continue to interview and depose people uh, and go through the list of those that we have, um, we're getting to the stage that we're, we'll be ready, I think, I hope in a couple months to begin a series of public hearings. We want to do those in a logical order uh, that, that tells the narrative of what took place of these multiple lines of effort to overturn the election. At the same time, we're working on uh, our report and we'll be compiling uh, the definitive report of what led to that tragedy on the 6th and recommendations about how to protect the country going forward. And that's how I see us proceeding. You know, our ultimate aim is to try to prevent anything like that from ever happening again. Will we get the report before the midterms? You know, I, I, I'm uh, confident that we'll finish our work this year. Uh, beyond that, I don't think I can comment on the timing. Well, Congressman Schiff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about everything that's going on. You bet. Great talking with you. Next Tuesday, Congressman Schiff will chair a hearing on the biggest threats facing the United States with testimony from all the leaders of the intelligence community. And in Ukraine, an update from last week's guest, Olga Tokaryuk. She says the first person she knows personally has now died in the war. Her former colleague, cameraman Yavini Sakun, was killed when the Russians launched a missile attack at the main TV tower in Kyiv, which also hit a Holocaust memorial and killed four others. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. If you liked this episode, please give us a rating and review. It helps new listeners find us. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next week because there's always more to say. <laughs>